Hello and welcome to Living in a Time of Dying, the podcast about living in a time of global pandemic, social upheaval and injustice, climate catastrophe, and mass extinction. This podcast is a companion to the eponymous book, Living in a Time of Dying, Cries of Grief, Rage, Love, and Hope, co-authored by myself and Taoist mystic, Toltec I Ching master, wisdom teacher, and my dear friend, William Douglas Horden. I'm your host, Megan Elizabeth Tauk, a writer, philosopher, soul mentor, perpetual student, and mother of possums. In this podcast, I and my guests will engage with a selection of chapters from the book to explore the questions, the conundrums, paradox, and fractal edges of this thing called living. This is an invitation to commune and feel together the weight of these times with all the grief, rage, love, and hope that it arouses within us so that together we may dream a new world into being. Welcome back, dear friends and listeners. We're joined again today by Che Broadnax, who you may remember from episode one. Welcome back, Che. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's always good to have you. Um, today, we're going to be talking about the three-part chapter titled Spiritual Anarchy or the Inner Fascist. So by way of a summary, the term inner fascist was coined by myself and Mr. Che Broadnax way back two decades ago in the 2000 aughts. Um, and it's we kind of created it as this shorthand. We've been using it as this shorthand to refer to that voice in your own head that either tells you that you're worthless, we know that voice, and or that just continually cajoles and bullies you into kind of just going along with the status quo, even when that status quo goes against your own integrity, your own sense of wellness, right? And so in this three-part chapter, um, I frame this inner fascist in relation to the brutal history and social consequences of European colonization as an internal colonizer, which seeks to bully and denigrate and control our own selves, and which then leads us to project and perpetrate those same tactics against other people in the world around us. I write in the book that, quote, the inner fascist not only upholds and projects imperialist narratives of superiority and inferiority onto other people and the world through the prejudices of racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, and or fatphobia for the purposes of exacting dominance and control, but perhaps even more insidiously, it has us perpetrate those abuses upon ourselves, end quote. Yeah, breath. And um, as an antidote to the divisive and destructive force of the inner fascist, I posit what William and I refer to as spiritual or enlightened anarchy. Spiritual anarchy is an internal process or practice of and, and a commitment to relating to oneself and others with love, acceptance, and respect, rather than with denigration, loathing, and rejection. So for the purposes of this discussion, um, I use the terms fascist and fascism to kind of broadly describe the use of tyrannical, authoritarian, repressive, and oppressive methods to dominate, subjugate, and control. And thus, inner fascism describes the ways in which we use these methods both intra and interpersonally. So the inner fascist functions as a kind of inner colonizer a process which, I argue in the book, lies at the root of fascisms enacted in the social and political sphere. I'm just going to add one more quote from the book before we get into our discussion. I write, quote, We need to decolonize our minds and our hearts. We need to acknowledge, take responsibility for, and deal with the fascist within our own psyches that coerces, violates, and abuses us from within through our own habits of thought and self-talk, and which we then project onto others in the world around us. As within, so without. Fascism in the world is a symptom of fascism within us, and thus we cannot attend to the ideological hierarchies and systemic social oppressions in the world unless or until we attend to our own fascistic impulses. End quote. So, Che Broadnax, um, 
I took, you know, in, in writing this book, I kind of took this idea, this term that we coined, you know, as I said, two decades ago, and I kind of ran with it. Um, and I guess I want to start by just asking, you know, how you think about or define or experience the inner fascist, you know, for yourself. So in 2007, I was trying to write some more songs. I was I was reading a lot of books about psychology and um you know doing 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 the work, you know, always doing the work. And I wrote a song called Fear. It was about the inner fascist. I wrote a song about the inner fascist. I didn't realize I was writing a song about it. Um essentially the the concept was that well, maybe I'll just, I guess I could just spit it. Uh, it goes, since the very first year, it's been perfectly clear that fear controls the masses, the fear of disasters, the fear of other classes, the fear of the masses with whips at the back, and the fear of the pastors with God on their side. Abide by their rules, inside of their schools, keep an eye on their news, providing their views. Now spend all your loot instead of spending time on finding out your truth, because perspectives can vary, angles can change, language can barrier, and brains rearrange. Psychological post slavery chains got us pointing at the victim and placing the blame got us coming at our brothers like Abel and Cain got us playing the game from the cradle to grave and they planted the seeds when they first changed our names fears the weapon just ask Dr. Jonathan Crane which of, co of course is Scarecrow in the Batman universe um, <laughs> okay <laughs> and so what I was coming to was I was realizing that Everything that we're afraid of is um, internal, right? Like it comes from like we learn from the exterior, uh, you know, like we put our hand on a hot burner and then uh, the hot burner damages our hand and our nerve endings say, OK, that hurts. And then our memory, you know, has a whole story that it puts together, which is like hand on hot burner hurts. Right. So it's always that inner story that mm. creates in us uh, a fear of something. So there's something that I say. uh I say psychological post-slavery chains, um, right? What do I mean by mm. that? Mm. Uh, yeah. And that's that's really where I come to um, come to understand the inner fascist. To me, the inner fascist um, often uh, takes the form of a cop or of an officer or of an overseer. Um, and their entire purpose is to wield the threat of violence or death um, to, to control my behavior, right? Mm -hmm. It's inherently, it, it, is, it is born of the plantation. And what I say, I said, uh, they got us playing a game from cradle to grave and they planted the seeds when they first changed our names, right? So it's like mm -hmm. this, the, like... My lineage met this particular inner fascist, uh, you know, on the plantation. Um, the fascist doesn't just control or attempt to control. There's an entire cosmology uh, that this fascist operates on. Um, you already mentioned in your sort of definition um the ideas of superiority and inferiority and rigid hierarchy um, and sort of inherent values that can be mm -hmm. uh, categorized and ranked. Um, and so that is the, the medium within which the uh, inner fascist swims or whatever um, mm -hmm. is, is that particular worldview. And so as we navigate the world, um, the inner fascist can only respond to the world according to its worldview, um, which is that there is a, you know, there's a winner and a loser, right? Is that everything mm -hmm. is, is, you know, 
bifurcated. Everything has like you're either mm-hmm. <laughs> you're either on this side or you're on that side. You know, you're either you with us with or against us. Yeah. yeah. You know, here are some words that come up for me. One, a trauma, obviously, scarcity mindedness, uh, separation. Right. These are these are part of I think that cosmology that you're talking about that the inner fascist swims in, and it, it kind of. Um, makes us, I'm also thinking about, which we've mentioned before on this podcast, you know, Audre Lorde's Master's House, which is, again, another shorthand that you and I use. I think the shorthand of the plantation, the shorthand of the inner fascist, and the shorthand of the Master's House all go kind of hand in hand. Um, And so, you know, this cosmology or of of Master's House thinking of, um, what did you call it? The psychology of post- slavery chains or something like that right psychological post-slavery chains yes right um that that sees sees the threat sees the separation this bifurcation this this um uh, duality or binarism of you know like superiority and inferiority that then can only respond by having to try to prove its worth right and so much of what our our how we live today in the world, obviously this relates to capitalism, or as I write about it in the book, pulling from Bell Hooks's uh, terminology, the imperialist white supremacist says heteropatriarchal capitalism, um, that says that we have to prove our worth, right? That that we are not innately good enough to to exist, <laughs> right? We have to we have to pay money in order to uh, get food and housing and things like these to survive, which is which is ludicrous. I mean, you and I have these conversations all the time about how ridiculous it is. Um, but the thing about the inner fascist is that we've come to believe that that is natural. That that's just the way that. That of course we have to prove, like, of course we all have to have jobs to work for in order to, to pay, you know, to buy groceries or have a house over our heads. Like, how do we know that we deserve it otherwise? We have to work for it. And so it's this, this concept that becomes like embedded in our cells, in our, in our, in our worldviews and our assumptions about who we are in the world and who other people are in the world that says that we have to work and do things in order to deserve to exist. And that based on that, we are essentially never good enough. Like we are always trying to prove ourselves over and against other people, which creates this, it it like exacerbates this separation. It exacerbates this feeling of isolation and alienation of not belonging in a collective. It, It exacerbates individualism. Um, and I think ultimately it 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 is it exacerbates this a kind of existential terror and an anxiety and a depression and a, a kind of self-alienation, all of which are harmful. Like we're talking like this is harm that happens from the inside out rather than from the in, outside in. I think that's like we have outer fascisms, right? We're, we're, we're seeing more and more of that in our in, in our neck of the woods as Americans right now. And it's happening in other parts of the world as well. Um, this sort of recourse to, uh, as, as the Wikipedia um, definition gives us, you know, these sort of strong nationalisms and hierarchy and um, subjugation, et cetera. Um, those are, those are examples of, of like ex- the ways that our, our policy, our social policies and systems, uh, harm us from, from the outside. Right. You know, almost 20 years ago, I wrote a piece called my anarchist manifesto, which is a, a an appendix in the, in the print version of, uh, living in a time of dying and coming out of that process. I was like, you know, it, it sort of, it sort of paints this, um, not utopian, but like idealistic, sure, vision of what anarchy is, what my vision of anarchy is, and how we could actually live together in, you know, respectful reciprocity and care. Um, And what I realized through writing that was that um, I actually don't believe that humans can do that as long as we are so colonized and and have this kind of inner fascist this master's house thinking embedded in us as long as that's the the worldview that we're that's the lens that we're seeing and 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 responding to one another like we're acting and responding to one another from that lens i don't actually think that we can live in respectful in relationships of respect and reciprocity and care and so 
that's kind of what I was thinking about when I was writing about the inner fascists. It's like, what are these ways that that actually hold us back from being able to live respectfully with one another, to have the kinds of communities that support us to not just survive, but thrive, and where we can actually um, have the kind of liberation and freedom that that is our birthright. What I kind of recognized after writing my anarchist manifesto, or the, the hypothesis that I came to, was that all of the... You know, like I had up until that point, I had thought about racism and sexism and all of these uh, prejudices, like systems of oppression as the root causes of all of the evils of the world. Right. But what I came to was that actually those are symptoms in themselves. And I think that they're symptoms of what we're talking about. They're symptoms of this these concepts, these these uh, cosmologies of conditional worth. They're symptoms of the trauma that we inflict and and inflict on us our, ourselves and on other people that says that you have to prove your worth in order to exist in order in order to deserve to exist and be and be and be uh treated with respect and care so there's this other thing that i want to talk about that's connected to um connected to all this right and and it's like i'm just going to drop it here maybe we'll figure out how it relates later on and we'll come back to it but uh, so one time, this guy, uh, man, I can't remember his name, uh, but he's going to try to find uh, his old like teacher's teacher, right? So like, a, like one generation removed. And so, you know, he goes out, strikes out on his own to try to track this, this teacher down. Um, he winds up just stuck in a swamp. Uh, and he meets this weird little Kermit the Frog guy, and it turns out that's the that's his teacher's teacher. So this guy uh, is like, okay, well, I want to train with my teacher's teacher now. Um, and so uh, Yoda trains Luke Skywalker in the Force for a while. They're like jumping around, doing flips and whatnot. And after a long training. Uh, Something comes over Luke. He gets the chills. He says, there's something not right here. I feel cold. Death. Of course, Yoda responds. Hmm, that place is strong with the dark side of the force. A domain of evil it is. And you must go. And Luke says, what's in there? Yoda says, only what you take with you. Hmm. That's deep. Uh, but not only is that not only is that deep, uh, but then Luke tries to put on his belt with his blaster and his lightsaber. And Yoda's like, your weapons, you will not need them. Luke looks at Yoda and is like, whatever, and takes his weapons into the cave with him. Now, for those of us who, you know, have like all of this movie printed on the inside of our eyelids what happens next is he goes into the cave and then he uh encounters whom he believes to be darth vader uh for some reason it's not slow-mo it's like this weird stroby optical printed slow-mo uh they battle and luke pulls out his lightsaber and decapitates vader only to discover that it was not vader at all it was himself um I don't think you could, I don't, I don't think you could, you couldn't do better if you tried making a movie about, <laughs> uh, about the inner fascist. Yes. About the inner, about that. It's like, yo man, that's in you. And it's like, obviously there's a, uh, you know, there's, there's the rest of the whole star Wars baggage about Darth Vader actually being related to Luke Skywalker and so forth by blood. But like, that's not really. I mean, you know, I guess we're doing generational trauma in in the uh, yeah, absolutely in right? the trilogies or whatever. So that's that's something. That's something. So you bring up this term trauma, right? Which is definitely something we've talked about before on this podcast, and it's kind of it's, it's an in concept right now because I think you know it's part of the zeitgeist. I think we have a lot of 
we've experienced a lot of trauma in recent history, and I think we're dealing with a lot of historical trauma. And I'm, for one, really glad that um, I'm experiencing more uh, spaces that are having these kinds of really deep, important conversations about what trauma is and how it is transmitted, um, you know, intergenerationally or transgenerationally. And, you know, one of the pieces that I talk about in the book in these chapters, I think it's in these chapters, is about how, like, I kind of acknowledge my own impulse to create, to, to cause harm, which in the moment doesn't feel like I want to cause harm, but it's more like I have a need and I need to get it met and I will get it met out of, you know, whatever, by any means necessary, right? Whether that means that I have to use or manipulate someone else or even sometimes uh, enact physical harm, right? Whether it's because um, I'm afraid I'm, I'm in a situation that feels untenable to myself. And then the only recourse that I have to get myself out of that situation is to like strike out, right? And so I'm, you know, I acknowledge mm. that those are impulses that I have in my system. And these are these are impulses that I have in my system that I walk with every day. And I am always in conversation with them, particularly when I am encounter when I encounter a difficult situation, right? And these sorts of these sorts of impulses, but also these sorts of old uh, narratives that I think of as being kind of related to this inner fascist about how to respond to things, which sometimes are, um, again, about striking out or manipulating others to get my needs met or to get myself feeling safe. And other times they're they're about striking in, as it were, and manipulating myself and abandoning my own truth in order to stay safe in order to not make waves, in order to uh, stay invisible, like whatever those are. And so I think that these are all related to trauma, right? These are all ways that we have learned out of necessity to, to survive, to stay safe, and, and many of which have been taught to us very strategically, if unconsciously, by our caretakers and by our culture, right? And so this, this piece about this relationship between trauma and, and the inner fascist and our capacity to do harm, I'm curious, like, it, it's something that I deal with, honestly, like, in a deep way in therapy, because, of course, there's a lot of shame, too. It's, like, very painful to recognize how... I may have impulses that that hurt other people, let alone those narratives that I that I use to 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 bludgeon myself. Um, right. And I'm just if I you know I I recognize that it's very vulnerable material. So if you don't want to go there, you don't have to. But I'm just curious um, how I don't know how to ask the question, but how these things about this like master's house inner fascism, trauma, relate? So first of all, right, we've been doing uh, work together uh, with trauma um, and, uh, you know, some other scholars and philosophers. Um, and I'm currently in the process of doing the both and thing with with uh trauma and understanding you know the ongoing price of uh harm that is done to people as well as understanding that um it is what it is and you know uh each in in an Octavia Butlerian sort of way, right? It's just change. Trauma is change, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, to 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 borrow from Bayou Akamalafe, right? Uh, trauma is the rupture uh, in the narrative of reality. Right. It's something, uh, you know, like uh, um, um, Resma Medican says it's uh, too much, too fast and without repair. Right. And that's that's, you know, we can see the the connection there. So it's like a rupture in the sense of 
security, reality, uh, the day-to-day. Um, so when we're talking about sort of broad uh, sort of collective traumas, such as the COVID-19 pandemic, we understand it, it ruptured uh, you know, we hadn't had a public health crisis like that in the United States in a few decades. We hadn't had a public health crisis that affected people across demographics uh, in the United States in a hundred years. Um, you know, uh, people who had been working nine to five jobs, which of course are, you know, whatever, eight to six jobs, um, were sent home. Um, you couldn't go places. Like it was a huge disruption in quote business as usual, right? And and that was a trauma. Uh, of course, millions of people died around the globe. That's another huge disruption. Each person that passed away, mm-hmm. each person that ever dies, creates a ripple effect. You know, their their pets, their friends, their family, their family's family, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but all that you touch changes. All that you change changes you. Change is the only constant. Uh, Bio talks about the rupture. And if we think about this physically, right, the rupture creates a wound. And what that is, that's a break. And now you have the two sides of the break, right? Like if you have an earthquake (laughs) happens and then opens up a chasm, now you have an opening, a literal opening that you can go into and new territory Mm -hmm. to explore, right? And, and, you know, if you are, if you are uh, not tethered by gravity, then you have new ground to stand on. The walls of the chasm are ground uh, that you can stand mm-hmm. on, right? So somewhere in here is this sort of uh, colonial sense of of freezing things and trauma and this and when applied to trauma this concept that like oh this is a wound it's a break and we need to heal it and fix it um as opposed to a thing has occurred and now the landscape has changed and now we need to navigate the new landscape right and so this is this is a this is an area that I'm still really sort of digging in. You know, I feel like a child in a, you know, like at the beach with just like some shovels and buckets and just digging and being like, what's here? Oh, more water? Like, what's over here? A strange, tiny crab. Um, because it goes against everything that, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that 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 we, we may have learned um, about not just trauma and harm, but also just like good and bad and Mm -hmm. yes Yes. and no. Like the the very concept begins to trouble uh, sort of the the bifurcation between like before and after trauma, right? Like it's like, Mm -hmm. and it begins to trouble the idea of like trauma is bad. It's like trauma is and um, as well as, you know, the other thing is that it's like, are we referring to trauma as the event that occurs or the ramifications of the event, the shaping of, mm-hmm. of what's of the terrain, next, the new terrain, of yeah. the new terrain, literally the new terrain or our bodies as a bio is very interested in talking about that, or even in, um, you know, if I get, you know, if I get like, if I get sick, if I get like bacterial something or other and I get really sick and I take antibiotics, right, uh, and then they wipe out my gut biome, um, you know, that's a trauma. That's a physical, physiological trauma to my body, but it's also like a community of loyal 
little microbes that experienced like a massive collective trauma, but they're also in my body. And like, so the idea that, that, uh, even the borders between me and outside of me are blurry enough that where trauma happens becomes blurry. And, you know, going Mm. back to this idea of like one person passes away, but multiple people experience that loss Um, Mm. and it changes them. I love this. And I love the imagery that you create about the earthquake and that rupture that then the, I forget how you said it, but this, this sort of dimension, like if, if you are not beholden to gravity, the actual walls of those two, the two sides of the land, right. In an earthquake that have, that have been rent asunder become new terrain. And it, it, because it made me think about fractals Uh and this, this kind of the opening up of these new territories, um, that are in the in and of themselves whole, right? Um, it's a really beautiful thing, and you know, I was thinking as as I was preparing for this podcast, I was thinking about how to uh, how do we how do we kind of soothe the inner like how do we quote unquote heal the inner fascist right? Since you brought in that that terminology, this this idea that there has been a wound, there has been a rupture, and it needs to be fixed. It needs to be like re knit so that we can go on in some way that is like quote unquote normal. And, and I love, I love the way that you're, you're bringing in bio and all of these concepts that are like antithetical to that. It's like, no, this is to to try to fix something is actually part of the paradigm of like the quote unquote status quo. It's actually part of master's house thinking that says that there needs to be a normativity and, um, and anything that is ruptured or is, has been traumatic or that is dis disruptive to to that normativity is you know uh, needs needs to be kind of put in its place or smoothed over in some way um yeah this i i get what you mean about you know really just digging into this because it i think it it fundamentally changes how i certainly um have have been raised to think about the world and about myself and about honestly my humanity like the fullness of my of my humanity from you know the illness my experience of illness and being a chronically ill person to my let's say foibles of character or my actual like really serious faults and the ways that i have caused harm to people um around me or you know the days that i get stuck in bed and can't quite get myself out because the inner fascist is so uh, harsh in my ear. Um, that that all of those, it's it's like our our old friend Paula would always say, you know, like what if there's nothing wrong here? Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What if? Yeah. What if this is all um, like rich terrain? That we are walking together, that we are traversing together, that we're learning together. Right. So, wait. Can I go back to Luke Skywalker? Sure. Okay. And then I, I have a kind of a question that I want to pose okay. to you. All right. So, right. What if there's nothing wrong here? Right. What if that cave is strong with the dark side of the force, and there's nothing wrong here? What mm. if that cave is strong with the dark side of the force, and like he says, <laughs> Luke says, there's something not right here. I feel cold, death, right? So already Luke is suggesting that death is not right. Mm. Of course, a much older and wiser Luke will uh, understand that life and death are both parts of the same, you know, cosmic symphony that is the force, right? But Mm. this young Luke is already thrown off and thinks that there's something wrong there. There's death. Right. And Yoda doesn't tell him, oh, stay away from that. Yoda says that place is strong with the dark side of the force, a domain of evil it is, in you must go. Right. Mm. Like, so this is a both and situation. Luke thinks of it as, oh, it's a test. I've got to beat this test. Right. Uh, Death. 
right, is strong with the dark side of the force, right? It's the fear of death. And we know that the dark side is fear and anger mm-hmm. and hatred, um, right? And you have to go in it. One, everything that lives dies. So you won't have to go there. Two, you have to experience like life and death. You cannot disconnect from one of them and experience the other, right? Which is kind of like the lesson that he learns later on. Um, And then the only thing that's actually in there is what he takes with him, right? So it's like, That means that that evil and death that's in there is what he takes with him, right? It's just part of the human experience. And, you know, I think the the original Star Wars trilogy is maybe not as um, articulate uh, (laughs) with with, um, sort of uh, separating good versus bad into something that's not quite as binary. It's, I would say it's, it's pretty bad at doing that, but like from time to time, you can still, from time to time, the paradox and the both and stuff that, that informs uh, some of it is still in there. Hmm. How can we be whole beings? How can we move? This is like a question that I walk with every day. And particularly when I'm not in my house alone, but like when I'm in interaction with other people. And it's so, so easy for me to abandon myself, to betray my myself, to betray my my truth or my thoughts or my feelings, my emotions, my body, right? Is how how to walk as an integrated being and not uh, try to squash or chop off parts of me in any given situation that feel inappropriate or um, shameful or inconvenient or, you know, X, Y, Z. So, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to read a quote from the book. I write, in the face of the inner fascist, the courageous and radical practice of integration, which recognizes a real relational ethic of universal mutual reciprocity must be fundamentally founded in unconditional love and acceptance of self respect for others' individuality and unique expressions and experiences, including cultural, racial, gender, and other differences, a willingness to engage and connect across said differences, and a commitment to build relationships of commonality across difference rather than foment tribalistic divisions along exclusionary lines. Neither the inner fascist nor social fascisms can survive in a psychosocial landscape of spiritual anarchy, in which we know that we are never truly alone and cannot be divided or abandoned because we are inherently connected and held within a loving and respectful web of relations. So this piece about... What page is that, by the way? Oh, geez, I don't know. Sorry. You don't know. You don't have those... You don't have a physical. It's like one I I didn't I didn't write down the the citation. But this piece about offering love and compassion and respect and grace to those parts of ourselves, to that, to the inner fascist first, right? Like, let's not talk about going and meeting the Proud Boys on the front lines quite yet. Right. Although that's very that's very much needed, right? But like, how do we like we'll be much more we'll be much more um I think uh, effective, forget successful, but effective. If we go and meet the Proud Boys from a place, for example, uh, if we go if we go there, having met the place within ourselves, that that also the acts inner from Proud Boy. The inner, yes, when you meet the inner Proud Boy with love and acceptance and compassion and grace, um, it's much easier to then face that in in the external world too yeah it's it's like go ahead okay right so in i don't know this is just movie time 100 percent movie time with shay broadnax in the oa um there is a scene that's a show it's on netflix they canceled it after two seasons so this guy steve he's he's a troubled teen He's got a lot of pent up anger. His parents tried to have him kidnapped and sent to one of those reform schools. Uh, so he's got a lot of, a lot of, a lot of stuff 
bubbling around inside. He's got some, he's uh, got some trauma. He's got some trauma. He's got a lot of uh, a lot of internalized uh, negative self talk. Anyways, he stabs away in the leg in one scene, and she just hugs him and just keeps hugging him until mm. that stab breaks into uh, crying. Now it's hard to figure out where the border is between martyrdom and that i feel like this is a really good uh like place to kind of pivot and talk about anarchy and spiritual anarchy this piece about uh, a spiritual anarchy is like a practice and a fostering of that kind of internal alignment so that we can meet the world with absolute presence but also with absolute respect and I think that that, you know, it requires, again, first and foremost, bringing that kind of respect and care to ourselves so that then as we meet others, we are grounded in that respect and care and integrity in ourselves. And we can treat the world around us with respect and care for their own integrity, for, the, for, for its own, their own wholeness. Speaking of integrity, here's what Valerie from V for Vendetta says in her letter, her V for mm. Vendetta letter. It seems strange that my life should end here in such a terrible place, but for three years I had roses and apologized to no one. I shall die here. Every inch of me shall perish. Every inch but one. An inch. It is small and it is fragile, and it is the only thing in the world worth having. We must never lose it or give it away. We must mm -hmm. never let them take it from us. I hope that whoever you are, you escape this place. I hope that the world turns, the world turns, and things get better. But what I hope most of all is that you understand what I mean when I tell you that, even though I do not know you, and even though I may never meet you, laugh with you, cry with you, or kiss you, I love you. With all my heart, I love you, Valerie. Uh, I was using uh, Natalie Portman's British accent for that. Oh, which is, burn, which is why I wasn't that Natalie. <laughs> burn. Yeah, there's okay. a reason why that movie always makes me cry. I know. That one inch. Yeah. I have like a visceral sense of it. In, in in my in like I know it when I feel it that 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 one inch that which is actually like it it's in in that it's one inch but it's actually infinite right like the, this is the fractal uh, yeah. nature nature of that of that story that metaphor right is that in that one inch it's actually etern like infinitely spacious in that one inch this is what she's talking about in that one inch we are free and i think it's it is that one inch that i'm talking about as the spiritual anarchy right it's this ability to hold within ourselves and i don't even know if hold is the right word right like it's the ability to move with i don't even know what the word is with wholeness with what is, with God, even. Um, and there's such a there's such a sense of agency in that, right? I think so much of what the inner fascist is is it's a giving up of agency internally and externally, right? For the promise of of security, for the yeah. promise of of protection from whatever the threat is that we that we fear. Um, and that's why, you know, that's why we submit to strong men. Um, you know, I, I talk, I talk about, it's like the daddies, you know, we want a strong daddy to like mm -hmm. protect us and also tell us when we've been bad. Right. And we also have like, you'd also call it like the inner daddy, right. <laughs> of like, Oh, I've been bad. I need to go punish myself. Right. This yeah. like puni this, this, this knee jerk punitivity. Um, but in that one inch, in the spiritual anarchy of that one inch, which is actually fractally infinite, I think we have this actual tremendous agency that is not, um, it's not dependent. It doesn't need protection because it's actually going to be okay. 
because we are rooted in a presence that is, again, I don't know the, like there, like I fail to have words, like there's a divinity to it almost. There's a collectivity to it. There's a divinity to it. And so I just, I'm going to read a couple, these are like two of the last paragraphs from the last uh, part of the, this chapter. I write, um, it does not have to be this way. The current paradigm does not serve anyone except as an ultimately fragile, transitory, and illusory facade or mirage of power, importance, and control. In truth, it only harms all of us to uphold such a delusional and divisive binary narrative and fascistic paradigm. But to defeat fascism in the world, we must heal the fascistic impulses within our own psyches. There's that word heal again. Through a radical commitment to love, compassion, and respect. Maybe instead of heal, I would say reckon with, right? We need to, mm-hmm. we need to dance, or, or as Bio would say, we need to dance with the fascistic yeah. impulses within our own psyches through a radical commitment to love, compassion, and respect. Imagine what it could be like to not live in shame, self-loathing, or a persistent fear of social rejection and or oppression. To not have to fight or sell ourselves in order to survive. To not have to compete against others simply for the right to exist. Imagine, rather than feeling alienated and afraid of so-called others, what it could be like to instead feel a sense of deep belonging to a beloved community. We must envision this new narrative, and with it a new world in which all people, including queer, trans, and Black, Indigenous, and other peoples of color, of all ages, sizes, and abilities, have access to the resources they need to live safe and fulfilling lives in which the supremacy and powers of whiteness and cis maleness are abolished and queer, femme, and all bodies of color are accepted and protected, in which we are all considered full citizens of a global community and arbitrary borders no longer separate us and demarcate who may receive necessary resources, care, and support, in which we cooperate in global solidarity rather than attempt to dominate and or exploit our neighbors in which everyone's physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual integrity is honored, in which non-human animals, organisms, and ecosystems are treated as equally valuable and inextricably essential to human life, in which the exploitative economic system of capitalism is replaced with one based instead on an ethic of care and universal mutual reciprocity, in which differences between people are respected and valued, in which individual free expression is supported as an act of vital creative fulfillment, in which love is what moves us, what draws us, compels us ever together and ever forward in the sacred mandate of our unfolding potential. We cannot create what we cannot first imagine. We must break our own hearts, minds, and spirits out of the old narrative of superiority and inferiority, hatred and fear, and begin the courageous work of dreaming the as yet unknown into being. Okay. In response to that, I wrote once, I'm dreaming of a world where creative fam get together to practice being creative fam for no other reason than creativity is our natural resource, our gift, isipo, the Wakandans call it. The immaterial vibranium that so many colonizers attempt to extract and compress into their precious energon cubes. And it's energy enough to power starships drive to Cybertron or drive a capitalist's power to the stars. It may also prove to be the force bending the moral universe in an arc towards justice, with apologies to doctors Chanda Prescott Weinstein, MLK, and Master Yoda. Our stubborn freedom dreams defiantly proclaim our beingness, imagining something somehow for ourselves besides what white man's is imagined for us. Watching a decaying mass transit system might lead hymns to demand budget increases or privatization, but we don't watch, we see. See more in an old train than a commercial product designed for municipal people moving. Those early hip-hop alchemists collectively freedom-dreamed trains into canvases, message boards, a party line, a declaration, and a billion other possibilities that may or may not have ever had a language to name them. Dreams realized through the deed, 
buried seeds sprouting through the scattered debris and shattered concrete. Pox rose that weren't to breathe fresh air. Mm. And I feel like that's what's possible in the one inch, right? Like that's what's possible when we step into the into the rupture, like like as you were ex- describing earlier. Yeah. Into into the into the the crevasse and the in the ravines created by change by earthquakes. Into yeah. the frac into the fractal edges that turn out to be infinite expanses of possibility. Into the abyss, shall we say? <laughs> into the abyss of the illusion of abyss and the abyss of illusion, <laughs> right? Um, and and into yeah. I think into the the courageous place of the shadow. Mm-hmm. In a in a kind of like Jungian transpersonal yeah. psychology sense, like whatever that is that we have pushed into or out of our awareness, out of our uh, out of the the realm of quote unquote normativity mm-hmm. in our social realm, out of what's acceptable, out of what we're willing to look at, if we actually like integrate that back in, welcome it back in, dive into those spaces. And into the ruptures created by those spaces or by pushing those spaces away, then so much possibility can be opened up. So much freedom can be opened up and we step actually off of the plantation and out of the master's house and and begin the work and the play of what, what it might actually be like to, to build a beautiful world together. Yeah. Um, yeah, the work of freedom dreaming and specifically collectively. Uh, yes. Right? Uh, right. So like Robin D.G. Kelly writes in uh, his book, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, um, the design and realization of such a space, that's the space we were just talking about, mm-hmm. ought to be the product of a collective imagination shaped and reshaped by the very process of turning rubble and memory into the seeds of a new society. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I have to say, when like when I hear about turning rubble into the seeds of a new society, like not only do I think about you know, Tupac and the rose growing through the cracks in the concrete, right? Um, because that's rubble and like seeds. But I also am reminded of the whiz and uh, the the motion picture and how as a kid, uh, it taught me, it, it, no, it reflected a reality to me, which was that every thing is magical. (laughs) Like every place, Mm -hmm. whether it is just broken, a field of broken bricks or a field of beautiful, you know, like flowers or whatever is equally ripe with potential for magic. Right. Um, And yes, something about this work, the, the work of collectively dreaming that which we do not yet have uh, around us or that which we have been told cannot be. Um, It is the largest of risks, right? We run the risk of being deemed not just impractical, but insane, Mm. Uh, you know? And (laughs) there's, I'll tell you one thing fascists love, uh, is uh, ableism, right? So, yep. <laughs> so the uh, the the inner fascist keeps us from exploring the boundaries, uh, or rather, exploring where we've been told the boundaries are between sanity and insanity. Between mm. uh, what was the word you said? Normativity and then uh, otherness, um, mm-hmm. and. When we get out there and look at the border and really feel into it, uh, sort of like when you're breathing into a tight spot, uh, we realize that there is actually no border there. 
Mm-hmm. It's just something on the inner fascists piece of paper. Um, but we are able to freely, uh, you know, like, uh, cross back and forth over that line. Much like Luke Skywalker crosses over the line into anger when Vader starts being like, sister, so you have a twin sister. If you cannot be turned, then perhaps she can. He's like, never! And he really starts wailing on Vader. He uses that to get the upper hand and then he, he takes a step back. That's not canon. I don't know if that's true, if that's canon. But to me, in that moment, he feels his anger and his fear and wields it in battle and then, like, winds up doing some stuff that he's like, ooh, ooh. But he's able to pull it back. He's able to- And he pulls it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he pulls it back because he doesn't give it, like he doesn't spiral, basically. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know well, what I mean? we. It's like I, I love, I love your the. You're speaking about the borders on the on the inner fascist piece of paper. However, you just said that it's like it's almost as if we project ourselves into that that illusory terrain that has been created by fascism by the inner fascist by the master's house thinking right and then we assume that those we think that those borders are real like they appear as actual borders in front of us as actual walls and things that divide and chop us up but what we're really just looking at is like a map on a paper that somebody scrawled with like crayon or something and to be able to actually see it for what it is and be like oh this is a fantasy this is an illusion this is a this is a dream this is a yeah. particular a particular type of dream that has particular consequences yeah. or has had particular consequences but we actually don't need to uh to to move in, in the ways that this paper would suggest that we need to move we have right. other there are other possibilities we have agency we have choice and like luke skywalker sometimes you get drawn in by it and it seems very real but oh my god you can actually pull it back and still have grace for yourself and for the Lord Vader <laughs> in whatever form yeah. he takes. Yeah. Um, and and I got a couple I got a couple things I can throw on to that real quick, which is Okay, okay. So we're in we're in the realm of last thoughts. So I know, go, I know. Go, That's why go. I'm throwing them out. So so yeah. you know, we're talking about that the borders are on paper and they're imaginary ultimately. There's someone else's imagination, right? Um, so, you know, to, to go to, uh, the idea that we are in an imagination battle, uh, 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 Sun Ra and June Tyson, um, you know, uh, there's a song called somebody else's world, AKA somebody else's idea. Uh, and the lyrics go, Somebody else's idea of somebody else's world is not my idea of things as they are. Somebody else's idea of things to come need not be the only way. I don't actually know how to do the rest of it. (laughs) Need not be the only way to vision the future. What seems to be need not be what need had to be for what was is only because of an adopted source of things. Some chosen source as was... Can you hear Kit Kat? Yeah, uh, Kit Kat some, wants to spit too. Some chosen source, as was need not be the only pattern to build a world on. Now, that's mm. a little hard to like to hold on to, but I love the idea that somebody else's idea of somebody else's world is not my idea of things as they are. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be this way. As I write in the book, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't we have can, to we be can this imagine, way. We can imagine and create something else for ourselves and one another. And uh, as we wrap up, I will just say that I am ever grateful to you, Che Broadnax, to be my kind of, I don't want to say my imaginary friend. 
because you're very real. But like my no. brother and Ima- in, 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 like we've yeah, been we dreaming together for a long time. We do. And we've been doing it for a long time. And um, I think I know that my reality has changed through our co-dreaming together and in uh, because of my relationship with you. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm just really grateful to be in the world at the same time as you as we um as we both dream a future that is off of the plantation and out of the master's house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wild. Thank you for having me on here. I can't believe we didn't talk about black Panther once. Oh my um, gosh. Wow. I'll have was, to bring you back on just so you can talk about black Panther. Yeah. I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to talk about the integrating of the T'Challa and the Killmonger within us all. There, see, you did it. It's it's in it's it, it's in, it it's in. in. We got it. It's in the <laughs> it's show. In. It's in the show. All right, friend. Thank you so much. Until next time. Yeah. See you Take, later. Take care. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us in this episode of the Living in a Time of Dying podcast. If you are moved by the material discussed here, you can read or listen to more in the eponymous book, Living in a Time of Dying, Cries of Grief, Rage, Love, and Hope, coming soon both in print and audio from booksellers everywhere. And if you want to hear more, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts in order to be updated when new episodes drop. You can also find out more about my work at soulmentor.org. Until next time. Remember, you are an enfoldment of the universe, showing care to itself. Everything is God. Live well. Die easy. In Love and Rage, I'm your host, Megan Elizabeth Tauk. Take care and be well. Mm-hmm.